Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Good. 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 How about you? Uh, Pretty good, all things considered. Still a little discombobulated, you know, from yesterday's slaughter events. Yeah. Took me about 24 hours to process them, and frankly, like the Oilers themselves, about half of the first period before I sort of snapped my head into watching the game. <laughs> I, I think the Oilers are still processing it, and I see a lot of, just from the post-game interviews and what I was seeing was a lot of players who were unhappy that it got to that. Mm-hmm. I just saw McDavid's brief mm-hmm. post-game interview. His attitude mm-hmm. seemed to be, we had this, you know, we've been in this position before. Of course, yeah. we're going to snap out of it. And mm-hmm. we did. And we believe in ourselves. And I think, I mean, we've been seeing a lot of, um, some amount at least, of criticism of McDavid and Dreisaitl. Like, oh, they're finally going to come alive tonight because they got rid of the coach. And I just I just find that, I, I find it kind of the worst kind of conspiracy thinking, yeah. honestly. They're not wired that way. And well, they're, uh, maybe they're, they're it, if they're happy that the coach is gone, they're even better actors than they are hockey players, which is saying a lot. Yes. I mean, yeah, they yeah. appear absolutely despondent to me and, yeah, you know, I, upset. And they don't even know what the hell's going on because they've been in such a slump that we haven't seen for forever. Yeah. Like boy, both guys and, the, you know, the, Top guys on the team are putting up zeros of a type that, you know, that uh, we've not seen before. So it was just a matter of any time now that they're going to snap out of it. And snap out of it they did tonight with uh, uh, big showings from the big guns and the 4-1 uh, win over New York Islanders. And I of course, people deserved who, win. Yeah, people who believe that will say, well, I was right, like Drive Settle had four points tonight and McDavid had two. And he, but I, I do, th- I am basing this not on what I imagine they think or imagine their character, but uh, like you on their statements the last few days and their demeanor um, and just McDavid's yeah. demeanor over time. I just have never seen mm-hmm. a moment where he hasn't gone all out yeah. in a game. And um, I didn't see that as he was working through his injury and getting back into play mm-hmm. and just his demeanor. Um, and Hyman's post-game interview tonight. Like, I just think these people desperately want to win. They're they're committed to winning and, and to their top performance. And I think they had a lot of respect, as Hyman made clear, for, for Woodcroft and Manson and the other players have made clear sure. as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there was any of that. And I just, I just, um, I just, anyway, people can fan the way they want to be a fan. I, I didn't like it, but whatever. This is our two good things, two bad things and two numbers podcast, Bruce. We'll go with two good things each because it was a first win for Chris Knobloch, their new coach. It's a big mm-hmm. night for him. He seems like mm-hmm. a very humble, smart guy, kind of like Jay Woodcroft. And um, he got the big win tonight. Congratulations to Chris Knobloch mm-hmm. for that. That's a big moment in his life. And uh, he's worked a long time to get to be an NHL coach, and he got the big win tonight. What's your good thing? First good thing. Yeah, first good thing. Yeah, well, I'm going to take the first Edmonton goal 
uh, absolute beauty snipe scored by Leon Dreisaitl. But I'm actually going to back up the tape, Howie, uh, about 30 seconds before the goal when the Islanders were doing what they'd been doing what seemed like most of the first period, cycling the puck deep in uh, Edmonton territory and not necessarily getting dangerous shots, but, you know, getting puck in good spots where stuff could happen. And it seemed like Dylan Holloway just suddenly became tired of the whole procedure and he just skated into the corner hard and absolutely ran over. I think it might have been Kyle Palmieri of uh, New York. I think it was 21. Whoever it was, he was trying to come out behind, from behind the net with the puck and he was kind of leading, leading with his shoulder and Holloway just came over and crunched him. He kind of got him in the shoulder, and the guy kind of turned away a little bit, so a little bit in the numbers. You know, they could have called it, but what they didn't do was call it. And what that guy didn't do was continue to cycle the puck. He went down hard, and the puck came loose, and then Holloway himself chipped it up the boards, and uh, out they went north with the puck, Gevington. And from there, Holloway went off, but it was he who started the whole change of possession. And uh, the the goal actually came sort of two possessions later. But first of all, they got the puck down in uh, in New York territory, and uh, uh, they got it over to Drysaddle on the on the boards. And he went down, and he was handling the puck. He was on his knees, both knees, and he had the puck on the stick, and he was still looking around, making a saucer pass through the slot from his knees. And that didn't quite click. And CC just smartly. Uh, as he often does, uh, um, he's very, very good at just dumping the puck down into good spots along the boards. Keep he's good it simple. at pinching. He's good at, uh, you know, just keeping the play alive and getting it to a spot like he's not going to dangle and deke and score himself, but uh, he can bump it around the boards to someone who can. In this case, Drysaddle, and his second attempt was just a wicked backhand pass right to Kane in the slot, and he hammered a drive that just missed the net. And then New York got it, and it looked like they were coming out, but they never made it to center. And Darnell Nurse, uh, I think that was the Nurse one, got the puck yep. and uh, yep. uh, whipped a quick short pass up to uh, uh, up to Drysaddle uh, at breaking back in over the blue line. And the third time, Leon uh, got the took the shot himself as he was coming in on the right side, and he just wired an absolutely inch perfect shot just under the blocker, just over the pad, just inside the post on one of the best goalies in the world, Elias Sorokin, to tie the game one-to-one. And I know just as a fan, I breathe just a monster sigh of relief at that moment. You know, not just the game is tied, but here's a, a sign of life from from the big guys that have been struggling in terms of actually hitting the score sheet. Like, Leon's come so close so many times these last uh, two or three games in particular. And uh, this was uh, uh, this was one that was buried, and it took a lot of the, the load off. And, you know, that stood as the only goal. It was one-to-one right into sort of midway into the third before, uh, uh, yeah, like seven, seven and a half minutes into the third. So those two periods would have been a lot more difficult to watch had Islanders been leading one nothing the entire time as they basically had since the first minute of the game. So that was a huge play and turning point. And I credit Dylan Holloway as making a play that helped to turn this game. Indeed. Um, that was nice. 
Um, I mean, Drysaddle's good at this, but w- when he came out of the zone, he just did a really nice lateral cut across the blue line. His feet were moving. He was moving fast, and he got that pass at speed yep. and was able then to get around the defender with his uh, stick handling and his speed and his size and his strength and then just power it by the goalie. It was a classic shot. Oh, man. Classic uh, Leon Drysaddle. <laughs> Not a moment too soon. <laughs> and uh, he was very relieved to score. A moments too late for Jay Woodcroft, I guess. But uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, and we'll get into that. This, yeah, we will, yeah. In our conundrum, we'll, we will. All right. Delve, okay. Yeah. Let's. let's, that let's uh, I'll stop dropping the bombs. And we'll I, wait I, I till did, then. I we'll do it at the end. I did. <laughs> My good thing is just I'm going to just go with a small thing. Um, a play that I don't think I've seen from Evan Bouchard on the power play since he arrived in the Edmonton Oilers. So I don't know how many minutes on the power play he's played, maybe three, four hundred. Yeah, uh, maybe even more than that. Yeah. But um, so tonight uh, on their, I think it was the first power play, he got the puck to center ice. And in the Oilers system, the play is you always drop it back to Connor McDavid or to whoever the trailer is. It's almost always McDavid. Sometimes he'll make a pl- pass over to Leon Dreisaitl, who will carry it in. But it's usually Dreisaitl or McDavid. It's probably McDavid 90% of the time, Dreisaitl 10% of the time. On this occasion, Bruce, um, Evan Bouchard went for the pass, and then he, then he saw a lane, and he took the puck over the line himself. He made the play. He charged it in there. Now, he, he didn't hold it long enough to make a good play himself. That's that's going to be in phase two of this project. Right. But I believe it actually is a project. I don't think he just did that um, out of the blue. And my suspicion is, this is just a suspicion, I'm just guessing, is that Paul Coffey, this might be the first instance of Paul Coffey's influence on Evan Bouchard. If it's there, take it. If they're giving you the zone, the offensive zone, and they, they did, mm-hmm. take it. And this will be one more wrinkle for the Oilers' power play. Him rushing in there. Him uh, using his speed and and skill to gain the zone. So not a bad idea. Because the other teams this year especially, they were getting on the Oilers on that play more effectively than in the past. So maybe McDavid's injury was part of it. Mm -hmm. It was certainly McDavid's injury was part of that. But tactically speaking, you know, at some point, other teams are going to figure that out. They're just not going to let it happen. And if if you're just Bouchard and you're just like a robot putting it back to McDavid every time, it's not gonna. It's yeah. down the road. It's gonna cause you trouble. Well, in the past it has ca- up the road. Looking back up the road, it has caused trouble in the past. Yeah. And Bouchard sometimes I think he gets a little hard headed with that drop pass. Where even if there's a guy between him and McDavid, he'll try and make it anyway. That drives yeah. me nuts. Uh, and he. Uh, uh, but just to, to add that little wrinkle, I mean. You have a few, and I mean, with David McDavid himself as his own entry machine, and he also has this play where he comes ripping up where if the two defensemen collapse toward him, he'll make this quick backhand pass to Nuge on the left-wing boards yes, right at the blue yeah. line, and he'll come in. But you're right. I mean, Hyman never does, and the D-man never does. It's always sort of the three, the middle three that do the vast majority of the of the uh, entries, and surely they will continue to do so. But uh, to have uh, uh, an extra option up the sleeve is never a bad thing. It is not. If it's there, if it's wide open, 
go for it. I mean, he can he cross the blue line and get to the ringette line or to the top of the faceoff circles, hammer a slap shot. I mean, the guy can shoot the puck too. So um, yeah, it might lead to good. Just one more way to get in the opponent's end and make your power play. Just one more little wrinkle to make it that less predictable. What's your second good thing, Bruce? Yeah, I'm going to go again with uh, Stu Skinner, who I thought had another very strong game for Oilers tonight. Uh, faced uh, 33 shots and only allowed one of them uh, early in the game. Uh, 40 seconds in, I think it was already his fourth shot. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it was, uh, um, uh, he just slammed the door and he just, again, had a rock-solid game. A uh, couple that came came close, but he was dealing with sometimes deflections and also redirections from right in tight to the net where somebody would take a pass on the edge of the crease and try and slam it through him and there was just no holes through which to slam it and he he just did i thought a really strong job of you know just being big in the net and taking away these uh these tips and and jams uh from in tight and he made um uh one series of saves right after the orders made it three to one and you're thinking, can I breathe a sigh of relief yet? And then within 20 seconds of the three, one goal, New York had four dangerous shots on net. I think three of them we counted as great A's. Yeah. And, uh, and Skinner stood tall again and rejected those. And I mean, if New York comes back and scores even one, then to make it three, two with 10 minutes left, right. Then you're sort of puckering for the whole rest of the game. And, and those were huge saves by Skinner in that particular moment in time to keep it three, one. And then to their credit, the Oilers kind of took control of things from there on, but he delivered those, uh, those big saves when, uh, when badly needed. What a difference a solid goaltender makes, whether mm. it's Stuart Skinner or it's Stuart Skinner. Because um, <laughs> we never really saw that from Jack Campbell this regular One season. One game. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he need, Jack Campbell needed to go to, to um, the minors to get his game together. He was just, it was not happening. It wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But Skinner, uh, oh boy, do they need him to do this. And he looked, to me, even more so than the last game. He looked like the Stuart Skinner of last year when he was good, just so steady mm-hmm. in the net. And and what he's known for in those moments is anything that's coming right at him, he gets, he gets mm-hmm. that first shot of, he's just, he's, he's in, he's always square to that shot and he gets it again and again and again, you know, he, he can get beat like any goalie on passing plays or, um, cross sure. places, breakaways, that kind of, you know, rebounds. But One time rockets from the slot. I saw some people criticizing the goal oh, against yeah. on Twitter. And I'm thinking, this is not the right time to be on Twitter. That was, that was a sniper and it was a sort of short yeah. cross seam pass, but he just snapped it right in the top corner. Yeah. And, you know, what do you do? Anyway, apparently you, you criticize the goalie on Twitter is what you do, but. I wouldn't criticize the goalie on that one. The breakdowns happened before it ever got to him. They did indeed. Yeah, it's a wide open one-timer shot off a pass in the slot. Um, so not the easy, not an easy save at all. Anyway, great to see him back. Um, hopefully he can he can remain this because they're gonna they're gonna need it. Um, Bruce, my um, second good thing was Connor McDavid's goal, and. Um, McDavid looked pretty good all night, but he looked really, really good on that goal. 
Leon Dreisaitl made an absolutely spectacular pass. It's again, it's it's on the power play. Leon goes diagonally across the ice, hits McDavid on the fly. And McDavid bursts in with his great speed. His great speed has never been affected by this injury. Like you can, I think the legs have always been there. It's not a leg problem. But this time he was able to get that hard shot off the fast rush. That mm-hmm. has been missing. That has been totally missing. And the nice hands that he showed on the, the previous power play goal to Hyman, too, flipping it out to Hyman in the slot. That was, that was missing. So um, this is excellent news. Um, I mean, I've been hoping, thinking, I've been seeing McDavid getting healthier as the weeks have gone on here. Um, but th- this was a real indication tonight uh, um, that, that maybe he's getting over that, whatever that injury was, because that was a hell of a shot. And not many players um, are, have what we call a five-alarm shot as they're coming down the wing and cutting into the middle. Um, most players, it's hardly a grade-A shot because it's if it's from the dot and out, face-off dot and out, it's a save that you expect the, an NHL goalie to make. When McDavid gets down fast, coming That's in speed. speed, and gets off that shot, it's a five-alarm shot. It's I expect it to go in. Thirty-three percent of the time, yeah, it's it's a dangerous, dangerous shot, and it's the first time we've seen him score a goal like this. I think this year finally found a hole in one of the netminders. Hey, eh? a very shot. tiny sliver of a hole that just yeah. barely dribbled in and didn't even reach the back of the net. But I think he shot it hard. Is yeah. like I think he got yeah, a good most of the way shot. through him, and he just couldn't squeeze it, and it came out the back. And the, and the miracle of that shot is how fast he's moving and his ability then, even at that speed, to get off a hard shot on net. Because oh, yeah. hardly anyone else can do it. Maybe Nathan McKinnon and a few others going at, at, at that highest speed and getting off a hard shot on net. So that was fantastic to see. What's Good your bad thing? You. Yeah, I'm going to go with the first 40 seconds of the game. And I'm thinking it's Oilers' season in microcosm. And uh, the new coach is just sort of getting a, a lesson. And here come the Oilers, hashtag, uh, right, from the, right from the outset. They actually won the opening face-off. They charge into the zone. They're thinking, this looks good. Leon has the puck. He looks up to make a pass. He whiffs the pass. It gets intercepted. And down the ice it comes. And New York gets... Two shots, one from outside, and then the rebound shot from close range. And Skinner keeps them out. So they have there's a whistle. Still all part of the 40 seconds, because the Oilers never did get out of their own end again. They changed the lines at the whistle. And again, off the off the whistle, they they uh, uh they gave up a deflected shot from the point that was kind of funky and, and dangerous. And then uh uh it looked like Evan had good control, but they couldn't properly execute the breakout. And there was a pass from uh, uh, from Eckholm to Nugent Hopkins that didn't click, and uh, it jumped out into the slot. And there was two uh, Islanders there, and one slipped it over to the other guy, Barzell, who let fly the previously mentioned rocket one-timer snapshot that just flew off his stick. That was, and into the net you go, and you're thinking, holy moly! I haven't even played a minute yet, and it's already one nothing down. And it was just the Islanders kind of jumped on him and Edmonton just came out like they were a little bit um, shell-shocked, you know, and, and with with cause. But boy, did they ever get uh, uh, called out in very short order. Four shots and a goal in the first 40 seconds of the game. 
Well, that turnover from Leon to kick it all off, it's like, oh, man. He just whiffed the pass, I think. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, it happens. He's he, uh, he's such a great attacking player, but even the mm-hmm. greatest attacking players whiff on shots. Yep. I mean, he whiffed on the – he didn't whiff, but he missed the net on the um, the goal and um, might have ticked off somebody. But when McDavid put it to Hyman there, that was off a missed shot by Leon Dreisaitl as well. He's – you know, he's – Coming around though on the attack though obviously a four point night, uh, no one's going to scoff at that. But the, that yeah that pass to McDavid that break in pass was was uh, Leon at his best. Bruce, my bad thing will be ha- uh, Holloway's injury, and it's not just the we don't know how bad he's injured right at this point. Hopefully, hopefully, it's not bad, and sometimes it's not right. Sometimes it's okay, even if they leave the game and don't come back, it's for precaution or whatever. Um, or just oh, they need to see when the swelling goes down overnight, like what they're looking at. But he started to play well. He started to really get his game to get together in the last two or three games, and then this. And man, has this been the story of Dylan Holloway's career? If this is a serious injury, and again, we hope it's not. But mm-hmm. um, he's had he's been struck by injury a number of times, held him back just as he was ready to make the move. I think, and here. We could be going again. So that's my bad thing. Yeah, knocked him out of this game, and it kind of knocked him out of the rhythm. And one of the things that um, uh, uh, Coach um, okay. Coach Garlic said in the uh, post game was garlic? Uh, yeah, a knoblock is the German word meaning garlic. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So, anyways, he uh, he said he he thinks it's really important to play Fogel and um, McLeod together, and uh, which is a combination we've seen work well with uh, you know, in the past. <clears throat> and he said Holloway too, but he said, of course, he left the game and then Ryan stepped up. He said and did a fine job, uh, but um, uh, it just messes up with the, with the lines. And even even at that, like all the forwards, like Holloway had the least ice time at 7:23 because he went out, you know, sort of late in the second period when he crashed into the boards. And uh, Hamblin and Lavoie each had a little bit over eight minutes, and everybody else was up and over like 14. So the top nine really got uh, uh, a fair bit of uh, a fair even amount of ice time. Not many power plays, of course, to, in yeah. this game. So or not much power. And, and even less power plays. The ones the Oilers had were short. Yeah. <laughs> so that partly explains that. And, and, and that's yeah. what Coach K said after mm-hmm. the um, after the uh, game. You know, they were asking him about ice time. And he said, you know, he wants to get these McLeod and Fogel together, get them going and having, you know, get everyone involved. But he said, you know, sometimes the game doesn't work that way. There's situations where there's lots of, penalties and he said well so you know if when you win the game it's usually because your best players played so he said it's going to be situational it's going to depend on the game and i liked his honesty there i just thought that's that was a very rational calm description of how the nhl works and it particularly works when you have players like Connor mcdavid and leon drysettle on your team and you want to play them a lot so but uh yeah he's coach k is a very calm thoughtful person and uh, I found that to be encouraging. 
You're going to get pushback on that Coach K from basketball fan, college basketball fans. There's not that many here in Edmonton. (laughs) (laughs) Not many. There's only one Coach K. You. Yeah. 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 How can you say that? How can you yeah. call him Coach K? Wait till he's won a championship before you call him Coach Garlic. K. <laughs> Coach Garlic. You might also get pushback on that. I don't know why. <laughs> um, okay, let's go to yeah. our numbers. Bruce, what's your numbers? Yeah, uh, I'm going to just focus on the ice time numbers. I think there's, you know, there's. Always interesting numbers, but when a new coach comes in, I pay special attention to this, you know, every other year or so, and the orders change out to coaches. And I alluded to it a little bit already, but the top four, almost identical, uh, between uh, Ekholm, the least at 21 minutes and 19 seconds, and Cody Cece, the most at 22-22. Like, literally, they were all within a minute of one another. Uh, Bouchard, 21-44. Nurse, 21-38. With 30 shifts each for the Nurse Cece pairing, which is not a number that often pops up on this uh, event summary. So they were changing defensemen out maybe a little quicker than uh, what we've been accustomed to seeing. And again, there was no sort of two minute long power play shifts for Bouchard to skew uh, the average. But the uh, D man, uh, 51 seconds a shift was the longest uh, of any of them. So uh, that's pretty reasonable. That's that's not too long a shift at all. And up front, McDavid led the way 19 minutes, 31 seconds, followed by Dry Saddle, 1859. And in his uh, long pregame avail today, uh, Knobloch said that um, uh, he'd like to keep those guys closer to 19 minutes than 23. You know, unless there's, you know, he, he's got the he's got the extra minutes in his hip pocket on the game, or they might be chasing the game. But this game, they were, you know, hanging around in the game, but they weren't killing off their top two guys in the first two periods, and they wound up playing 19. Nuge played 17. Kane uh, 18. Uh, Hyman 18, and then the whole third line was, uh, you know, 1447 for Fogel, 1514 for McLeod, and 1320 for Ryan, who sort of got promoted in game a little bit. So it's like 15 to 19 minutes for most of the, everybody in the top nine. And the top four are almost identical time. And oh, yeah, the third pairing 15 for Kulak and 17 for DeHarnay. So they were in the regular rotation as well. So that, you know, they were using everyone. And I was heartened to see a shift from uh, Hamblin and Lavoie. Uh, and I'm not sure who was on the left wing of that shift because, of course, they had 11 forwards by then. But with under five minutes to play in the third period in a three to one lead, they got a, you know, a regular full shift and they held their own and, you know, killed their little part of the game. And, and they got a little bit of cherry time after the empty net goal, but uh, uh, by then four one, it was the outcome was fully beyond doubt. Three one with five minutes left, it most certainly is not, and they uh, they still got their their turn. So it's uh, it looks like he uh, wants to uh, get everyone involved. Bruce, my number is six. The Oilers are now six points out of a playoff spot. I think Jay Woodcroft brought it up. He said they were seven points out, so now they're now they're six. Um, Arizona 
and um, St. Louis are tied for the final wild card spot with 15 points each. Uh, St. Louis has a game in hand on the Oilers. So it's a little early to be looking at this kind of thing, but it isn't. The Oilers yep. have got to fight their way back up the standing. So this is the key number. Can they can they reduce that? Let's say a point, point a week might be a little wow. ambitious, but a point a week might be good. Uh, one point a week. But Bruce, they're really three wins. If those if those two teams lose three games in a row and the Oilers win three games in a row, they're tied with them. So this is the season is still young. Um, there's plenty of time here for this team to get back. I know because people do this whole, well, the Oilers have to win now. You know, they look at the whole gap run of the season and they have to have, you know, a 640 winning percentage or something like that to make the plus. I, I don't think that's the way to look at it. The, you look at it in smaller bites. And and the bite isn't, the big six points isn't too big a bite. Especially like the teams ahead of them are Calgary with 10, Nashville with 10, Chicago with 10, Minnesota with 12, Seattle with 13, Arizona with 15, St. Louis with 15, and Anaheim with 16. None of those teams are a better team than the Edmonton Oilers. And the Edmonton Oilers should be able to make progress on all of them, steady progress. So that's the goal. Every, Even if it's every two weeks, it's a point. If it's every two weeks, um, that's... You know, that's a, it's going to take uh-huh. two months, two and a half months to catch him. That's a little longer than I'd like, but that's doable. You know, they should mm-hmm. be able to do that. I think, it, you know, a point a week would be good mm-hmm. in terms of the catch up. That'd be six weeks. And so by Christmas time, they're they're back into this thing. Well, given that last week, it was like minus six in a week. You know, that's the whole reason yeah. behind. There was like three game days in a row where the Oilers lost in regulation and all of the other teams ahead of them. You know, Vegas, Los Angeles, uh, or uh, Vancouver were just winning every game. And it was like there, there was a spell. I think it was a five-day span where the Oilers lost six points to two or three of those teams and several points to several other teams. And that was like they were bleeding out before our eyes. So it's like it, you need to be gaining ground and you're dropping two to the whole league every night. You know, it was just... A, it was a the out of town scoreboard was not our friend through that span either. So they have some making up to do. But yeah, one or two points gained in a week is a good week. You just sure gotta is. do it and you gotta do it now regularly for a while. You do. And they can do it. And I thought they could have so so uh, tonight's conundrum is could they could they have done that under Woodcroft? And I just wanna start off this, because um, 'cause I'm just looking at uh, Rob Tishkowski's uh, post and uh, he quotes McDavid. You know, other people were quoted this same quote, but let's just go through his quotes. What McDavid said about Woodcroft and Manson getting fired. He said, "Quote: I was obviously surprised. I didn't see it coming. I loved playing for Woody. I loved playing for Mance. They are two unbelievable coaches. I really think they will be in the league very, very soon. Two great coaches." Someone asked him, "Did Woodcroft's message start to get lost over time?" He said, "Not at all. Not at all. Not at all." He never lost the room. He never lost the room. So I heard and actually good, saw that interview. And sometimes good to wait until you hear what someone has to say before you imagine what they think. Now, some people still may hold stubbornly that um, he doesn't believe this, that this is just, he's just talking garbage, as I saw one person on Twitter say. 
Mm-hmm. Listen, like I just, um, I think Jackson, I think that like there's this disparity between what Holland and Jackson said between what the management, the leadership group said. I think what the, it was just an imprecision in the questions they were answering. They were answering, they were digging into two different things. Holland was saying, yeah, we talked to the veterans, but he didn't say they, the, the question wasn't specifically, did you ask them about f- hiring and firing the coach? It was just like, you know, kind of a vague question, like, had you talked to the, you know, this is, these are hard times. Have you mm-hmm. talked to the, the leadership group? And he said, yeah, we talked to the leadership group. And then Jackson was emphatic in saying they had nothing to do with this decision. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was fantastic. Um, I don't, actually don't have a problem with if McDavid and Dreisel did have a say or if, if they didn't. I don't think personally that's a big deal. Some people do. But he, he, he Jackson saw this this narrative starting up on online and in other places about McDavid and Drysdale essentially coach killers. And, and he just, he stood up for his players in a way that Glenn Saylor used to do, I, as I recall, for the entire team and for his best players all the time. And I just love that from Jackson to see him take mm-hmm. that stand for these two players. And it turns out, combining what he said with what McDavid said, it's, it seems like they're just completely being honest and candid about what happened. McDavid said he found out he got a text on Sunday morning. He said, just like you guys, meaning the reporters, you know, yeah. sort of that it came through. And I mean, we got essentially a, you know, a tweet is how I got it. I'm not anybody's insider or text uh, line, but, uh, you know, uh, and it how he presented it, like, I, he's not an actor. I said that already. And it's, you know, he just sort of blurts stuff out as it, as it happened in his life, right? Like I don't see him as being a scheming manipulator. <laughs> no, at all. No, he's not and, crafty. You know, and and uh, uh, anyways, it's it, it it's uh, this being oil country, you know, questions will be asked and and uh, hopefully answered. And uh, yeah. some people thought there weren't enough questions being asked towards. Uh, uh, Ken Holland, when they were talking about accountability between players and and the coach, of uh, maybe accountability of those higher up the food chain that uh, provided you know the goaltender for one thing that was part of the problem. Anyway, uh, there's uh, uh, there's distrust I think among fans and not Some without fans. cause. Some fans. Not without cause. I mean, this team's got a long and checkered past. It's fair to say that. But uh, um, they, I, I'm, I would be, uh, you know, just from what I've seen and and McDavid's demeanor in the past few days and seen him interviewed a couple times, and I just don't think he's a devious sort that would be able to hide if he was involved in it. You know that. <laughs> It's, I mean, just maybe well, Jackson co- said they they don't want mm-hmm. to be involved. Yeah, yeah. That, well, that's why would what they? rang true to me, and that yeah. when he, when he said that, that's the moment that it rang true. Oh. These guys don't want to make this. They don't. Why would they? Why would they want that responsibility unless they're mm-hmm. total like yeah. control freaks? Like, in, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I, yeah. He also McDavid also said, "quote Obviously, our play hasn't been good enough. I'm first on the list there. Good for the yeah, That's some accountability." That's accountability. Mm-hmm. As for Holland, um, people have there's people who have been criticizing him all along. They're continuing to do so. 
I thought heading into the season that even with Jack Campbell, the Oilers were good enough to win the Stanley Cup this year and um, dominate the league this year. So I wasn't criticizing. Like When Campbell was signed, I, I don't tend to say a lot. His save percentages look good over the years. It's, you know, but I haven't seen players play. So I don't I, I don't like weighing in as soon as someone gets traded for. But I didn't complain about the trade then. I Let's take a wait and see attitude. And, you know, this hasn't worked out. But it there wasn't a lot of goalies available then. And um, they needed a goalie. And they couldn't get Darcy Kemper. Campbell was next on the list. So they signed Campbell. That was, you know, it would have been nice, as you mentioned last podcast, to get him for four years or three years at $5 million, rather than five years. Rent a goalie. Anyway, there's there was options the time. besides yeah. throw money at the whoever yeah. was left and, standing. And some people did say that. Like there's mm-hmm. some people who said that, mm-hmm. and they're fine in making that. I didn't, so I'm not going to be going there. Maybe you did. Did you say rent a goalie? I can't remember, Bruce. Well, it was certainly was an option. I mean, Mike Smith, who everybody couldn't wait to retire, he was a cheap goalie. Uh, yeah. who, you know, largely got the job done for like one year contracts at two million. You know, it's never anything. From Mike, Mike Smith never made a whole lot of money off of Edmonton at all. Could they have rented? Could they have like was was Reimer available then? Is that one yep, of the names? Absolutely. Because <laughs> Skinner, a guy uh, like that, yeah, Skinner was ready. So but you know, Skinner, we, could, we didn't know if Skinner was ready at that point. Yeah, well, you know, we have a lot more knowledge about Stu Skinner now than mm-hmm. we had at that moment. Right. So, like we've seen him become right. Of number one goalie and for months at a time. So we didn't know that. The other 2020 hindsight criticism is that mm-hmm. the Oilers maybe misjudged not only Campbell, but, but Skinner in terms of they didn't know what they had, that they thought we've got this young, up and coming young guy, but we think his ceiling is a backup goalie. Therefore, we're going to throw starters money at some other dude for five years, you know? And so there was no sort of Skinner be backup for a year or two and then have a chance at the, at the main job. So it was... You know, in, in retrospect, uh, uh, it wasn't as well handled as it might have been. Uh, anyway, that for something that just happened last week of the, the GM's prize goalie signing being sent to the miners less than 25% of the way into his 25-year contract, it never came up at the press conference. They and, could have uh, asked them, for sure. Yes. But it, they have lots of questions. I don't want to, yeah. like, these guys, are. they've got a lot of questions, and... But that Maybe one someone, is pretty fresh. I, I think, just sent him Yeah, I, I think I heard Ryan Rashog talk about it and say, in retrospect, he said he had a list of questions that he, right. and that would have been a good question too, he said. And, and so you realize that. So I don't think, yeah, you, you know, you don't always get asked all the questions you'd like in a, in a press conference. I can assure you of that. You get one or two questions yeah. usually. And it's not then, like Holland called a press conference the day he sent Campbell down to explain himself. That is correct. That is correct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the conundrum is, I don't know if I articulated it, like would it would would they be on their way back with Woodcroft just as likely to be way on their way back with, with Jay Woodcroft? Based on what Connor McDavid is now saying, um the answer is could could well be yes. Uh, and I don't, you know, this is a alternate universe thing we don't know um we don't know what the odds would be of that um i don't uh i don't i don't have a strong feeling about it there's there was a couple things that i didn't like with woodcroft i mm-hmm. didn't like his use of the third line 
Mm-hmm. That was that was the main thing that he didn't he didn't ever establish a third line this season. He had a great one in the playoffs, Fogel, McLeod, and Ryan, and we didn't see it once this year. That particular combination of players, I don't believe. And right. you could even go on natural stat trick and prove me wrong right now, Bruce. Yep, I but I don't think we I don't think we saw it previous to uh, tonight. And they had been a, a really good line in the playoffs. So I don't, I never, I didn't understand that. You know, as for the change to the zone defense, which has gotten a lot of criticism, well, we have Knobloch coming in, Coach K coming in, and saying that he, um, that he likes the zone too. And if you look at the NHL standings, the top two defensive teams in the NHL right now are Boston and Vegas, playing a zone, playing the Vegas-Boston zone. You know, this is a... Solid strategy. It's, it's it's a great strategy, and I don't think and it's all kinds of teams have moved to it this year. I I think we're seeing it more more often than ever before. Calgary moved to it. Um, I think it's it's so I don't I don't take Woodcroft changing his system. Some people think that was the issue. They weren't getting scored against on the cycle in the offensive zone. That wasn't the issue with the orders. It was rush chances, which yeah. have nothing to do with the zone defense. Right. It, that's so it like this this criticism of his systems or changing systems mm-hmm. it was incumbent on him to try a system mm-hmm. which is being adopted across the nhl because it works if you execute it correctly and the orders were were okay ish executing it they weren't really good they were they were might have been near the bottom of the list in terms of zones zone play initially but i think they'll get better under coach under coach k because they're going to keep at it because it, it's a good idea. So I don't think that was... So Woodcroft was going to have that. Knobloch was going to have that. Knobloch is a very humble guy. He said the first time he came in and he tried to do too much, it backfired. It was horrible. He says he's just going to kind of do what he can as he goes along to tweak this team, which is very sane. And I think Jay Woodcroft, in a lot of ways, had this team in the right direction. So... Um, Go ahead. Yeah, you want to talk about the two coaches, what you know, what the changes. Well, they won four one on Saturday night and they won four one tonight. And go. they got, you know, they gave up zero rush goals on Saturday night and they gave up zero rush goals tonight after bleeding to a game. Uh and some games worse than that. But on average, I think wasn't there twenty three in the first twelve games, rush goals yeah. against? Yeah. Yeah. And the last two games, that was 1-0, and I think tonight was probably 1-0. Well, uh, I was a power. Actually, the rush goal was scored in the power play. Drysaddle so scored a rush goal off of uh, Nurse's pass. Oh, right, right. Yeah, of and, course. And yeah, Kane's empty net goal was a rush goal. It, Drysaddle yeah. hit him on the rush, and he rushed mm-hmm. in and put it right in the net. That was, that was a shorty, but yeah. Same. Yeah, that was the uh, empty netter, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, I better change that. Actually. For shorty of the year. Was that shorthanded? That one? Yeah, you bet. Nuge was in the penalty box. Oh, gal. He took a. He tried to kick the puck. He missed the puck, and on the follow-through, he kicked the guy's skates out from under him. It was just sort of almost bad luck, but it was. He just skated straight to the box. He looked just totally exasperated, because you sure don't want to take a penalty with three minutes to go and a two-goal lead. But uh, they normally killed it. They got the easy shorty. Good play again by Leon to feed. Kane and he just outraced the guy to the net. Yeah, we so, wouldn't count that in our numbers as a rush goal then, because it, right, was in, cause it wasn't teams. even strength. Yeah, it wasn't even strength. Yeah, special teams won this game for the Oilers with two power play and one short on a goal in the third. 
special teams and goaltending. Bruce, what would you what do you think? Could would they you know, if if they are going to come back, do you think it was equally likely equally likely under Woodcroft or Knobloch? Well, Woodcroft's last game might be the beginning of a winning streak, who knows, but uh, and he won't get credit for it, but that the team was ready to turn and for sure the you know, the uh, percentages, numbers that uh, that we track in uh, uh, in the public analytics uh, indicated it was inevitable. I mean, the Oilers were running a shooting percentage, our PDO of 934. That means the other team was scoring, uh, had a shooting percentage over 6% better than Edmonton. Right? Like they, they congregate around 1,000. That's sort of the, you know, that's the median. And the worst team in the league last year was 975. Worst team in the entire league. So there's no way 934 is going to last. It was just, and Vancouver's at the other end of the spectrum where everything they're shooting goes in. And some of it is, I mean, obviously a lot of it is shot quality and so on, but generally that falls in a much narrower range. And the Oilers just weren't getting the, just making the shots. They weren't making the saves and they weren't, you know, it, it, it wasn't sustainable and sometimes unsustainable is a good thing when the thing that is happening is a bad thing you don't want it sustaining you want it to go away and i think it was inevitable that that uh they would turn a corner and hopefully they're turning it right now because it's none too soon after that disastrous opening month Jack Campbell has an 826 save percentage in mm-hmm. two games in Bakersfield. Jeez, I Stu hope Skinner so. threw up a 970 tonight. Here's hoping Jack Campbell can turn it around. I mean, he he was five years in a row. He was a pretty good goalie in, in professional hockey. From um, 2016, 2015-16, um, second half of 2015-16, Bruce, until 21-22. He was a pretty good professional. Uh, always like save percentages of 912, 924, 928, 900, 915, 921, 914. <clears throat> Man, just, I don't know if it was the pressure or what that got to him in Edmonton, but his game really fell apart. Hope, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, he can rediscover it in Bakersfield. You know, a lot of that was uh, a lot of those were as a backup, eh? Playing twenty-five games as opposed to fifty. Correct. There was only one season where he played more than forty games in that whole thing. Twenty-one, twenty-two in Toronto, forty-nine games with a nine-fourteen save percentage. The right. year he headed into his contract year. Um, the year was nine thirty-five in the first half and eight ninety in the second. Yeah. Yeah. And the workload may have got to him. Anyway, <laughs> well, it might be better. Like if he can get his game together enough to be a backup goalie again with a nine ten mm-hmm. save percentage, mm-hmm. might be a better idea to keep him than, than to buy him out. If Stu Skinner can be the number one guy, so we'll see how this develops. Well, all I can tell you is this is the fifth year of the Ken Holland era, and all five years the highest paid goalie has been the backup. <laughs> and we'll give him a. We'll give him a. We'll give him relief on the first three because he didn't sign the Koskinen contract. Chirelli uh, did. Chirelli did. Yeah. So, and all those three years, Smith would be the starter at, you know, one and a half or two, two 2.2 or whatever million dollars, and Koskinen would be the backup at four and a half. 
And now in the last two years, we have, you know, Skinner. Last year, Skinner was making the NHL minimum 750000 and he was he was a starter, and the backup was making $5 million. It's just kind of upside-down economics there. Indeed. Bruce, let's leave it there. Thanks for yes. talking tonight. Yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.